existence In existence, join the resistance Come on, let's start by talking tactics Have a pass and match us Here's how we practice Hey everybody, welcome to Pop Culture Continuum, this is John Elliott. This is Patrick Riccardi. And this week we have a special guest, Will Stegman. And uh, am I pronouncing that right? You are, nice job. I, I always get hung up on Will. Yeah, I assumed it was Will. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll be right back. I can't believe we're already doing these uh, vaudeville-style jokes, Pat. I'm going into a shame spiral much earlier than I usually do. But Will is... Uh, well, why don't you tell us about yourself, Will, and please tell us about your uh, what you're most famous for. Well, it, it depends on who you ask what I'm famous for, but uh, as you've already said, I'm Will Stegman. I'm a writer from Los Angeles. Um, the thing that people know me most recently for is the fact that I spent most of my life hating the most famous musician from my hometown. I grew up on Long Island where Billy Joel is a, uh, is a living legend, and I, for all of my life, could not stand him. And a couple of years ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going to listen to every song he ever wrote and recorded and write about it, and I did, and I found out that he wasn't as bad as I thought he was. So I did this thing called A Year of Billy Joel, which was a lot of fun, and since then, it's kept going. It's turning into a book. It resulted in me finally seeing him live here in Hollywood last week. It's been a it's been a neat adventure that is still going. And how was the show? You know what? The show was far better than I expected. You know, even after listening to all of the records, I figured you know, there's a big difference between, you know, he stopped putting out pop music 20 years ago. So there's a big difference between, you know, hearing a guy on record at age 44 and then seeing him on stage 21 years later, sure. and I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. He's got a great band. He, he mixes in you know, the, the big hits with some deep cuts, and he does a good job of explaining why he's playing the deep cuts, because it's very easy. You know, it's, we saw him at the Hollywood Bowl, and if you've ever been in a big you know, stadium show, and an artist pulls out a song that maybe not everybody in the crowd knows, it kills the it kills the vibe of the place. Yeah, yeah. So he does a good job of explaining um, you know, what's going on and why he's playing it. Um, you know, some of my favorite things from it though was just I went two different nights and the first night I was sitting in very good seats, but you know, in the in the, the general seating area and I have to say, sitting in the, in the I don't want to call them cheap seats because they weren't, but cheaper seats, the crowd reaction back there was a lot more fun. Um, I got very lucky at the second show through a, through a connection. I got really fancy millionaire seats. And uh, it, was, it was a lot more fun to be sitting back in the cheaper seats. Oh, yeah. It's, it's always fun slumming with the hoi polloi. Um, I generally send my manservant. <laughs> to, to those seats but i know i know what you're saying when i when i want to really get down and you know eat a taco or whatever uh i i get away from the first class section uh here's my did he have, sorry did, go ahead pat did, did he have the same set list both nights no he didn't he actually mixed it up considerably it was a good uh yeah he played three nights and i didn't go to the first one 
but I saw the set list for that, and he actually he mixed it up pretty um, pretty substantially. You know, like he opens with the same stuff, he closes with the same stuff, and then he mixes songs in in between. Any special guests at either show? Um, at the first show, he had I believe Adam Levine came out. Um, uh, he said special guest. Well, pardon me. There was a guest in the first show. Adam Levine was the guest. Uh, he did not bring anybody out in the second and third one. I was a little disappointed. I think here's here's what I think. Um, anybody at that level who's been doing it for that long, it's almost impossible for them to be bad live. I think. Right. They get their yeah. pick of background musicians, and I don't know if he's got a. I don't know much about Billy Joel. I don't know if he's got a steady band that he's had for a long time or not. But they're going to be tight, and he knows how to put on a show. I'm sure. Yeah. He's yeah. Been- He's been doing it for 50 years. Yeah, he's had, he's had the same band for quite some time. So they know their moves. But my, all right, my whole thing with Billy Joel, and you are the one to correct me if I'm wrong, because I know nothing other than the, the radio hits. Um, and I, I do own uh, an album, but it's a greatest hits album. That's all I've got of Billy Joel. Um, my take on him is he was, is more in the, in the style of the uh, or the tradition of brill building pop and that was not necessarily what was cool when he when he was coming up um and and so he was definitely looked down upon by the by the hipper people in the scene in the into music um at the time but i think um after after this long you can't really deny that many indelible melodies no matter whether you think he's a hack or whatever um the man knows how to write a song yeah, I went into it thinking, you know what, this guy is a complete hack. You know, this is going to be garbage. I'm going to make fun of this. And I was interested to find out that, you know, as my tastes have changed, as I've gotten older, you know, my, my opinion on Billy Joel was formed when I was a young goofball and didn't know anything. And as I've gotten older and grown to appreciate classic pop music and melody a lot more than I did, um, I've really come to appreciate the ability to create a song that sounds like it always existed. Yes, exactly. I get that sense from him a lot. Very, very timeless sounding songs or songs that kind of sound like they sprang from some sort of collective unconsciousness or something. Right, some sort of pop well. And interestingly, that same kind of feeling, um, not to spoil our episode here, but I hadn't listened to uh, the second record we're talking about today in quite some time. And I was interested to realize that I hear it with different ears than I did um, many years ago. So there's a little bit of a continuum in, you know, just looking at the way I looked at things in my 20s and the way I looked at things now. You know, I'm nearly 40. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Uh, Pat I, and I have talked about this a little too, how it's it's really, well, your project was it sounds like it ended up being fun the whole year of Billy Joel thing. Um, although you probably didn't go into it, uh, too, too happily. Um, well, I tell everybody who, who is looking to do a similar project because people have asked me like, Hey, would you mind if I did I'm like, look, you're not ripping me off. I, I took the idea from Nathan Rabin, which I, you know, you guys well, are familiar with him. The year of the movies, the, uh, yeah, my yeah. year of flops. And Nathan, um, it, you know, acknowledges that he borrowed the idea from the writer of the book, uh, My Year of Living Biblically. So, you know, we're all, we're all just kind of lifting off an idea and putting our own spin on it. 
But what I always tell people is, look, a year is a really long time. Like it's it's a it's a commitment. Um, had I to do it over, I probably would have done ninety days of Billy Joel because <laughs> I could have done it a lot faster and moved on to other things. You know, a year just seemed like a. You know, had had other people not done a year as a project, I would have probably done a shorter thing. Um, it just had a nice ring to it. I kind of thought of the name and worked from there. But on the other hand, doing it for a year gives it time to build and more people to get interested in it. Because if you're doing it for 90 days, it kind of will burn out quickly and people won't have time to, to log in and see what you're writing. Absolutely. And it gave it time for my opinion to evolve. You know, well, if, I did, yeah. if I did a week of Billy Joel, I wouldn't have felt any different from, you know, on Monday, you know, Monday to Sunday, my opinions wouldn't have changed that much. But it gave me time to, you know, anybody who goes back and reads it, you know, it's all still available, you know, at a yearbillyjolt.com. Um, you'll see that my, my opinions change drastically from going from, you know, I, I, I can't believe I'm not, uh, I can't believe I don't hate this, to I can't believe I, I, my opinion has changed this much. Yeah, well, and... I mean, I wonder how much a function of that is just uh, age. You know, you, you do tend to, I don't want to say mellow out, but you you become less doctrinaire in your, your maybe uh, your more punk ethics and stuff. I think I... Yes. Go ahead. I think that you can't help but look at things differently when you're older because, you know what, when I was... 22 years old, you know, what did I really have to be mad about? Like, I was very angry, but in retrospect, what was I mad at? And I, what I have, you know, at, at my age now is perspective and an understanding that, you know, there are things that are worth getting mad at, and then there are things that I just don't like. Right. And it's really not worth getting mad at somebody's music. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I had a, 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 in my, I guess I was like 18 or 19. I had gone off to college. When I came back, I had a, a good, really good friend. We agree with a, a, on a lot of matters, but we never really talked about music. And I came back and he told me of this awesome time he had going to see Billy Joel. I think it was Billy Joel and Phil Collins toured together. Something, maybe it wasn't Phil Collins, but someone similar. Elton John? Elton John toured together. And he told me the story about going, and I was like, I was. I didn't say it to him, but as I was hearing the story, I was just so bitter. And it's just like, that's a, what are you, idiot, listening to that kind of music? And he, he tells this wonderful story about getting the drumsticks thrown to him and like having an awesome time at the show. And I'm like, it took me an entire summer to even agree to listen to anything he's talking about because I'm at school. I'm listening to good music, not this crap. But, you know, it, it was – I never actually disdained the music to him out loud but in my head i was doing it and looking back on it now i was an asshole because he had an awesome story and it was and i and i when i listened to it i didn't hate it as much as i thought i would so i was just uh, i think i think a lot of it is youth where you just you just whatever you like is what is good and everything else can't be possibly as good and you're not like i'm not going to try the green eggs right and everything else has to be an opposition like there's no room for different opinions when you're 19 years old. No, it's it's a direct competition because it it bears directly on you and who you are as an individual. Yeah, it is. And like this is what's important to me and either you like it or you're against it. So whatever you like 
I am the enemy of. <laughs> right, you're denying, you're denying me on some level. It's yeah. So basically, we should have uh, more nineteen-year-olds in politics. <laughs> it's, yes, it just just gets down to no, you are wrong. Shut it down. Well, I think that's I think that's the uh, history of uh, white guys here in America, at least of our generation, is is uh, learning to uh, focus your rage on worthy targets as you get older. I mean, that kind of seem I see that in almost everybody I know that I've grown up with. Yeah, but I, I got to get back to the idea of teenage Congress. Like, <laughs> I think the idea of you 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 can get elected at eighteen and you age out at twenty one. Is fantastic. I think we should just just try it for one year, three years. Just no, stick with pilot. one year. One year sticks with your your uh, the your ability. A year of teenage Congress. A year of teenage Congress. We just like we just do nothing but run it like a high school election. So you either get a really smart kid or a really popular kid. We reelect a new Congress for one year. All high school seniors. I mean, honestly, what could possibly go wrong? What could go worse? Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's hard to think in in one year. Um, well, I, I can say right now, Social Security is turned off right away. Yes, Medicare is turned off. That's true. Um, yeah, all um, drinking age reduced immediately to fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thing is, like, I don't want to have to like go visit D.C. and then go buy beer for my congressman. So they're going to lower the drinking age immediately. But it, it um, makes it makes a uh, graft a lot easier yeah oh, I, I mean so great i do kind of want to buy beer for my congressman because then i'm a lobbyist nice work i mean just imagine like bribing your congressman with concert tickets oh it's gonna be so great teen congress is gonna be the best so for those listening we are discussing rem of course um not speaking yet of, speaking of things i loved as teenagers and still love now let's talk about rem well, actually, Will, I did want to say, um, but I don't know if I said on air. Thanks for coming on, and uh, I, you probably think we're we're doing you some promotional favor, but you're probably promoting us more, uh, just to let you know, realistically, than we're doing for you. I, uh, I've seen your your social media presence, and uh, I think I did the math. If you get two percent of the people who follow or are friends with you to listen to this, uh, our audience will. What's the term for 46 times? It's not quadruple. <laughs> I will. Uh, well, let's see how this goes. And we'll decide if I want to share this. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. That's, that's all I can ask of anyone. I, mean, I could say something terrible that I want no one to know. Believe me, I have full faith in you guys. I'm the one I'm worried about. Oh, you've, you've got things backwards. But yes, let's, let's get into REM. So before, uh, before we do this, I've been doing this um, with every episode so far, and I think this is the last one I'll actually do it with. This is their last album on IRS, and also um, by this time, I feel like the more alternative music was starting to make headway in the culture. But I don't know. I think it's worth doing it for a couple more albums. We'll see. But, um, but this, these were just for comparison's sake, because I know a lot of the younger people don't understand that REM was actually uh, an alternative rock group at one point. This is some of the Billboard uh, Top 100 singles of 1987, the year Document came out. Uh, they're not all bad, but when you compare them to R.E.M., I think you'll get a sense of why uh, they were alternative. So you've got Walk Like an Egyptian, uh, Alone by Heart, Shake You Down by Gregory Abbott, 
I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney. Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. Uh, Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. And Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. Everybody have fun tonight, Wang Chung. So you get the idea. Um, oh, also, of course, uh, With or Without You. Which I bring up because I... Uh, and I had to look it up online because I know if I was just relying on memory, some internet nerd would come correct me. But I did not see them on the document tour because you 2 played the next night. And I checked it online and they did literally play the next night. Um, and being 17, I didn't have the money for both shows. Uh but I think I made the right decision because I've heard some of the bootlegs of the document tour. And that was when Michael started saying all that stuff, you know, like, uh, the God I believe in isn't short of cash, mister. <laughs> so I, th- I think, you know, he, he was starting to, um, if I wanted to be lectured, I'll, I'll go listen to Dukakis. Thank you very much. But, uh, Oh, where's he lecturing? If I want a rock show. Please don't interrupt, Pat. I will. I'll go see you too, where I know it's there's going to be no between song banter. Now, my feeling on on you two is that back around 1982, when I was really first becoming aware of music, I cast my lot in with the Alarm, and I decided I was never going to back off of that. So, no matter how big you two got, I'm still holding out for that big Alarm comeback. I think at the time you made the wrong choice. Um, in retrospect, it's, it, it might be hard to say. I don't know. I, I, I stand by those, uh, those early alarm records. Are they? I think they're still touring. I think they are still around. Yeah. At least Mike Peters. Look, I know, I know individual alarm members' names, which who else on your podcast can name people from the alarm? Probably just me. But uh, they were they were. Damn good. Although I know that they toured with you two early on, toured the States at like 83, where initially the alarm was the headliner, and then they flipped it mid-tour. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I, I prefer not to speak on the alarm because I want to keep Will on the show um, until we get to R.E.M. <laughs> but they are another IRS record. Yes, that's right. You know what song I like now? This might be too late period alarm for you, Will, but uh, Rain in the Summertime, do you know that one? I do, yeah. All right. Um, talk All right, to you. We're, we're together here. We're good. I'll stay on the line. So what's, let's uh, hear your history with REM a little before we go into document, Will. When did you first get into them? You know, actually, I got into them around document. I, I had heard them before then, but was never really aware of, never really knew a lot about them. Um, but you know, when document came out, I was 13 years old, 1987, right? So I'm 13 years old. And I realized after I had heard document that I actually heard a couple of songs earlier. I had heard like, can't get there from here, which was, um, off of, that's off of fables, right? I had heard, can't get there from here. I had probably heard radio free Europe at some time. Because you know, I had a an uncle who was a couple of years old, only a couple of years older than I, I uh, older than I am. We're still the same age apart. He had we have not uh, we have not closed or lengthened that gap at all. But he was and remains only six years older than me. So he was introducing music into my life that you know was in that gap between my age and my parents. So he was the guy who gave me just a a cassette copy of Document when I was 13 years old. And it 
I don't want, you know, it's, it's a lot to say like, oh, and it changed my life, but it kind of blew my mind. You know, before then, I was, I was almost too shy to have, to have a sort of stated musical preference. Like I liked music. I listened to a lot of music, but I listened to it quietly. And if people asked me like, hey, what do you like? I was always shy about stating an opinion because I didn't want to be judged or to be made fun of for liking the wrong thing. But hearing document was the first time I felt like, oh my God, I'm hearing something and it's cool. And this is something that I identify with. And that sent me down the first, the REM rabbit hole um, to go and get all of their previous stuff. And then that led me to really what has largely defined my musical taste to this day. Um, you know, but I went from like R.E.M. to Husker Du, to The Replacements, to The Minutemen, um, and just kind of went out from there. You know, started with that sort of core American underground and then went from there. And I, it's not a stretch to say that my musical tastes begin with R.E.M. Document. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I think I had a similar uh, three years earlier um, similar thing with REM. That, that was it. It was Who's Could Do the Replacements, REM. That was the holy trinity of American college rock. And then, like you said, you get into the Minutemen and, and some of the deeper stuff and the stuff from England. Um, but I don't think it's – I mean, I know it's a cliche to say that an album or music changed your life or whatever, but the reason it's a cliche is because it happens. And so it sounded like this happened with you for Document. Yeah, it, it was that moment where it's the first time you feel cool. And I think everybody, whatever, no matter what music you listen to, everybody has that thing where they realize, oh, this isn't what my parents listen to. Or this isn't what the other kids at school listen to, which is probably more important than finding something different than your parents. But it was the first time that I felt like I had discovered something obviously i hadn't rem had been putting out records for you know eight years at that seven years at that point um plenty of people knew about them you know they were about to sign to warner brothers but it felt like a discovery no sure and i've i've mentioned on previous podcasts on the subject um it really is a lot harder to imagine for somebody who's who's grown up growing up nowadays but back then this was different i i would put rem on mixtapes for people and you would be surprised at the harsh reactions to it well when you what period rem are we talking about um i'm well i remember putting sitting still on a lot of people's mixtapes so it had to be um i'm thinking like 84 85 86 i was putting a lot of rem on Mm. on people's mixtapes and, you know, in retrospect, you know, we know that at this point they were big enough to be, you know, a big name for, you know, college students. And they were certainly earning a living doing this, but they weren't getting MTV airplay. They weren't getting any major radio airplay. No, and I, shoot, I had meant to check because I remember hearing the one I love, the single, and I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's great. That sounds like a hit. Um, but I don't think, I mean, it's definitely not on the Billboard top 100 of the year list so i think uh it's the end of the world as we know and i feel fine must have been on 120 minutes oh yeah i'm sure it was well what wasn't that even before 120 minutes i forget the name of it but there was something on the cutting edge yes which was an irs thing 
because I remember, um, I forget his name now. Uh, I don't you love on podcasts when people say, that guy, you know, I forget his name. That's but basically there, the theme of our podcast, so don't worry but, about it. <laughs> but there used to be a show, pre-120 minutes, there was The Cutting Edge, and I want to say that it was almost exclusively made up of IRS artists, because I'm pretty sure that the guys from the Flesh Tones, who were on IRS at the time, actually um, actually um, had a hand in booking that and may have hosted it. I believe so. I believe IRS, yeah, I know IRS was involved in the cutting edge in, in some way, pro uh, producing or whatever. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it looks like the one I love was a number nine hit, actually, US. It, it, it definitely charted and i'm surprised that it hit top 10 but when you look at like the entire year i'm sure it didn't uh yeah it didn't was, go that high it was no uh print sign of the times which is a good record it's a great record I, yeah that's a whole other now print is another person you should do the uh you should do the career split we have talked about it but we don't want to get sued i mean i guess we could do it without playing any music yeah that's what we'd have to do and it would probably would be, fun too. be unnecessary to play the music anyway. Anybody who doesn't know it, why would they listen to it? But true. Anyway, anyway, so I don't want to go down a, down a dark, a blind alley of uh, of um, Prince records. But you know what? Since you mentioned the charts, and earlier you were talking about um, other chart hits from 1987, and I have to say, I have no memory of the existence of Gregory Abbott. No, that's the one that jumped out at me. Is I think John made it up. I have that's, to say, like, you went down the list, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that, remember it. And in some cases, like, oh, yeah, I remember that existing, even though I probably couldn't sing you the song. Really? I have no memory of Gregory Abbott. Well, Is he a monk? Let me, let, me, <laughs> uh, let me tee up my mellifluous voice and give you guys a little taste of uh, some Gregory Abbott. As I remember it, these lyrics are probably wrong. Let me see. Here in my life, girl, I want to shake you down. No? Nothing. It's still, it's not, still brings back nothing. It's not ringing any bells, but I'm really please, enjoying it. Please continue. I can give you all the loving you need. Well, if that's not if that's not touching your sweet spots, I feel bad for both of you. Wait, but, at what at what point does giving you love involve a shakedown? Well, it was the '80s. That was back then when you know I only hit you because I love you, baby. Got it. But, all yeah, right. I, it was a different time. I guess. All right. Anyway, well, back to REM. REM. So this album, this was your intro to REM, and um, it's it's interesting. You're talking about your intro. I had a very similar experience. I think I talked about it in a previous episode with Radio Free Europe, where it just clicked. This is the kind of music I wanted to listen to. I didn't get into them till later, but it, it's funny how REM has that effect. I guess, like you said, different artists will have a similar effect on uh, everybody, but just that click is it's so nice to think about where things start to come together and this is what you want to listen to. Yeah, it's definitely a like, oh, this that moment of recognition. And, you know, I'm sure that people have had that moment of rec recognition for things that we think are terrible. Uh, and to be fair, it, it probably is. But I, I, I wish that I could listen to it again for the first time. Yes. No, I know what you... And that's why it's fun to go back and do this, too, and listen to these and, and kind of remember that, uh, why why it affected you the way it did in the first place. Yeah. I, yeah. This week, I listened to documents start to end for the first time in probably 
I don't know, 15 years. Like I'll occasionally, you know, dip into songs from it, but I haven't just listened to the whole record start to finish in forever. No, me either. Um, so listening to it again was a really, um, it A, took me back and also made me think, boy, what, what, what was going on in my life at 13 years old that this was the thing that resonated with me? Like, why did this resonate and not Bon Jovi? Like, how come this, how come I completely missed Gregory Abbott, but this is the thing that sticks with me, you know, nearly three decades later? Yeah, I mean, and who who knows? I think about that kind of thing as well. Like, thank God it wasn't Motley Crue, because are you really at, at age 40 still going to be, is that going to be your your go-to music? Motley Crue, it seemed, I, I can't imagine, but... I mean, I think there's something to be, like you said, you know what, if whatever music makes somebody feel the way REM, say, makes us feel, then it's doing its job, and you can't you can't judge them for that. Um, but I do think they're, on the other hand, that taste, good taste is not completely subjective. It, it comes from uh, intelligence level to some extent, and and uh, how much you've you've been exposed to. Um, you know, diversity and everything. And I think R.E.M. is is kind of, especially at this time, was, was music for the more kind of nerdy and intelligent kids. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that how quickly they became so much bigger than that. You know, and at the time, you know, four years felt like a very long time. But if you see that, if you look back on it and track the, you know, R.E.M. in 1987, just at the cusp, again, of signing to Warner Brothers, of becoming major label artists, to, you know, by 1991, being probably one of the three biggest acts in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. But I, it was one of those that I was happy when it happened, too. Yeah. It so felt- was I. I mean, when you realize, like, okay, Out of Time was a, was a gigantic, like, cultural touchstone hit. The kind of thing that everybody knew it, comedians would make jokes about it, and they didn't even tour. They didn't even take it on the road. Right. And it was just this giant thing. It was yeah, it was a it was a monolith in culture. Yeah. yeah. No, it I was, agree. But really uh, we're not supposed to talk about any of them. Uh, yeah, that's true. I don't I don't mean just, to get off track. Just document. But we try to stay on track the entire podcast, so As we'll, we will stay on track from, from here on. Well, let's let's go into songs. We each picked um, one song that I'll I'll um, insert into the podcast, but but we can talk about as many songs as you want. But we might as well start with the first song on the album, which was your pick, Will, and in my opinion, the best song on the album, uh, "Finest Work" song. So why don't you tell us uh, about that one and why you picked it? You know, it was the first song I heard off of the record. And, it, you know, from the moment it kicks off, it fe- it feels, like, triumphant. It feels, you know, for a band that wasn't known for having swagger, Finest Work Song feels powerful. And there's just something about me hearing it as a kid. You know, my uncle just giving me a tape and saying, here, you're going to like this. And me not knowing anything about it, you know, just handed me the cassette, you know, looking at it, going home and putting in the tape deck, just pressing play from the beginning and hearing it with completely fresh ears and immediately clicking, you know, right away. You know, by the time, um, 
basically the first three lines of the song are passed and you hear, you know, Mike Mills coming in with the backup, with the backing vocals. I'm like, oh, I'm on board. Oh, this is great. And it, it I literally kind of coasted on the power of that, you know, through the rest of the, you know, the first side, it's a cassette. So the first side of the record, it just felt like, oh, this is the thing I've been waiting my whole life for. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, this is this is the music that's been in my head that uh, somebody made. Yes, like somebody understands, and I didn't even know what it was. Right. You know, I, I heard this and immediately wanted to throw out everything else that I owned. Like everything else was just obsolete the moment I heard this. So a bunch of garbage men, garbage men got a nice surprise yes. with alarm albums. Yes. Let me tell you, oddly enough, Mike Peters from The Alarm was my garbage man at the time, and uh, his feelings were very hurt when I left them all in the gar- in the trash bin. He looked out the window and saw that solitary tear going down his face, yes. and he couldn't knock it off because he had that dirty glove on. Yeah, he was just thinking, you know, if they would have kept us as headliners and kept you two as openers, I wouldn't have to be doing this. You don't know it, but we used to be big. Big. Big, I tells you. We've talked before about uh, the Mike Mills backup vocals, which I think is it complements Mike Michael Stipe's vocals so perfectly. Uh, I, I, it's amazing these two people found each other to sing with. I love, I always love Mike Mills' background vocals. Well, the beauty of the Mike Mills' background vocals is he always sounds like he's in another room, and often he's singing completely different lyrics. Yes, but he always, yeah, he like. Especially, you know, on Finest Work Song, it's like he's yelling that from another room. Like, he's trying to get, you know, the rest of the band's attention. Like, I, I love it. It just, it just hit me the right way. And I probably never heard something like that before. No, I, exactly. It was completely unique, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, was there anything like that before? Not to my I'm knowledge. Sh- I'm sure somebody, you know, must have done it. But the idea that there were two guys who sounded... So drastically, um, it's not even that they sound different. It just was a different feeling. Like I said, it felt like there was a voice coming from another room that is adding, you know, background vocals to it. Right. It's not just your basic uh, harmony, which you've heard a million times. It's it's something completely different. Yes. you know, I guess when you grow up looking like Scooter from the Muppets, you do want to uh, shout at people from another room. I always felt like he looked more like that guy from the Muppet movie who was Charles Durning's assistant. R.I.P. Wasn't there a big deal made? You know, because from Document, I really went into, like, going to the library and, like, finding magazine articles. You know, this is, I want to date myself, but, you know, looking through microfiche and finding, like, you know, basically, you know, they had their first coverage in Rolling Stone and then going back and finding, you know, some lesser, you know, more underground or even more regional press, just like, newspaper articles talking about them and going through finding old photographs. Like it sent me down this, you know, this information rabbit hole that lasted years. And, you know, I don't want to be the guy who makes a big deal out of the fact that, oh, before the internet, we didn't know, but it was a big deal. It was like I had to get a ride to the library or, you know, take a bus to go sit at a microfiche machine to find photographs of a band that I liked. Yeah, no, we've we've spoken of this on the on the show before. I think it's um, 
I mean, I think it's just, it's different. I, I don't it's, necessarily think it's better, but, you know, because now so much is available. But back then, you really, like you said, you had to travel. You had to do the work. Um, and I think it maybe made the music mean something more to you. Yeah, because I, I had to, I only had a certain amount of time. So I had to use, you know, the two hours I had on a Saturday afternoon, because this is how cool of a kid I was, to go sit at the library and figure this stuff out. And it made me focus on something. I think that, you know, it's not better that I did it this way. I'm not a better person for it. I'm not a smarter person for it. But I feel like when I was younger, I had knowledge about fewer things, but it was deeper knowledge. And yes. It forced me to become really, really deeply interested in something which I prefer to having a light sort of coating Surface. of knowledge. Right. Yeah. No, well, and, and that, I mean, that kind of goes to the, the, your whole uh, year of Billy Joel thing was a, you know, that's an attempt to, uh, to that's recreate pinpoint that. focus. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to learn. And it's also just who I am. It's I'm never good at, you know, I could never have just one of anything. It's like, I have to learn everything there is to know. And yeah. this is probably where I first recognized that in myself. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm very similar. I remember asking just quite just questions in in say biology class or something when something would be explained and I would say, "Okay, but why? Why is it?" and always wanting to to go a little bit deeper and uh the teacher wasn't having it. But um well, before we uh well not as intellectual as you guys, but I I used to love the microfiche machine. Right? I would just go and pick out random old newspapers from 30 or 40 years ago, not ago from now, it's 30, 60 or 80 or 100 years, whatever, and just look at articles from back then just because it was so fun to use. It was really neat to make the pages move super fast. And mm -hmm. it was just interesting to go back in time for a couple hours of sitting in the library. And, and yes. I guess you can do it now with the internet, but it, it it's not this, you have to go through a paywall and blah, blah, blah. It's just not as, it's not as interesting. Yeah, I, I really miss the days of having to focus on one thing. Well, let's focus on one thing right now. Um, this is Will's pick from the album, Finest Work Song. Here you go, guys. Something I, I like about that that song is that that interlude with with no singing, just the drum, that that buzzing noise, just mm -hmm. kind of sits there in the middle. That's 
I think we call that know. a guitar. <laughs> no, the buzzing noise wasn't the guitar. It was the, that like the washboard or something. It wasn't a washboard, but that kind of sound like, uh, I don't know what the sound is, but anyway. Interesting. I'd have to, I, you know, at the time, it wasn't so easy to get like, you know, album credits beyond what they put on the record. Um, I have to say one of the things that I do love about the internet is it is so much easier to find out, you know, who was doing what exactly on any given track. Right. Who played Vibraslap? Right. Um, I do remember, you know, I talked about having that visceral reaction to hearing that for the first time. I remember like six months after sort of I really had gotten deep into, you know, REM. And at this point I had went and gotten, you know, taken whatever money I had saved up. I think I had a birthday that passed. So I took like my birthday money and went and found a record store that had um, Life's Ruth Pageant and, and picked up some other stuff. But I remember uh, putting document on for my dad to hear. Because by then I had gotten the CD version. I was pretty fancy. And uh, I was like, Dad, you have to hear this. And him getting 15 seconds in and turning it off. It's basically the same thing as my mixtapes. Yeah, yeah, just basically like, not not on board, kid. We're gonna go back to uh, Molly Hatchet. Well, and and who can blame him? With good reason, yeah. right? They're they're all good Southerners. <laughs> I thought you said Long Island, not uh, oh, Alabama. My dad, my dad loved Southern rock. Now, do you guys know the weird IRS Records Southern rock connection? No, I'm a little I, scared to know it. You have to you have to fact get your researchers on this. But I believe that IRS was originally like a subsidiary of Capricorn Records. Oh, the put big out, Southern yes. Records. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that the early success of, you know, R.E.M. and um, the Flesh Tones and, you know, the I believe that that basically helped keep Capricorn propped up for a while. I could be confusing it with another label, but I think I'm right on that one. Well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll send my manservant out to find that out. Um, but it's, it sounds feasible <laughs> and, and it's a little scary Yeah, but because at that point, Southern rock was kind of dead. I mean, what did you have? 38 special? Maybe Molly Hatchet was still going. I don't, I not don't really know. Yeah. It was pretty much 38 special was the only one who really, still had any any drawing power and that was you know how often how many more times could they make sequels to the movie teachers where they could do the theme song exactly and and you know you can only there are only 50 state fairs you can play in a year it's not a lot of gigs so um well pat i want i'm interested to hear your opinions on this album because this was this was a little before you technically got into rem um in a big way anyway uh, so what are what are your thoughts on the album? The album, everything. I, Overall, yeah I, I like, yeah. I like it a lot. It has it has a lot of stuff that that got huge. I I I don't know how huge it got, but I always think of songs I know really well as being super popular. Like Exhuming McCarthy, I assume is just one of REM's most popular songs because I've heard it so many times, and maybe that's just because I played it so many times. But I like uh, Document is as a terrific album. Yeah, Exhuming McCarthy was not a uh, not a huge song. As far as I know, it's more of a, a deep cut. Um, right, but it was briefly our national anthem. I don't know if you remember that. I do, and and uh, unfortunately, they went back to the old national anthem after that instead of uh, 
Rock Lobster, which I've was a, always been. Well, nothing for. Clinton did ever stuck. So thanks, it's, Obama. It's, you know, just it was a mistake. Honestly, going away from exhuming McCarthy and then replacing Rock, Rock Lobster with the current national anthem, which I got to tell you, drop it like it like it's hot, isn't a great national anthem. It is. It is not. I've said it many times. I swear to God, people would get up. I'll put my hand on my heart for Rock Lobster, but <laughs> I'm sitting down. Sorry for Oh Say Can You See. Yeah. Um, but Exhuming McCarthy, this was my pick, Exhuming McCarthy. And, uh, and well, I love it for many reasons, but I also feel like it was uh, kind of prescient, especially mm-hmm. uh, Absolutely. when you look at the uh, success of, say, Jeff Dunham. I'm going to strangle that one in the crib. I was going to try to do a Charlie McCarthy joke, but I don't think anybody even knows who that is. Probably I, including you. Too, I do so. because I'm a big fan of ventriloquism on the radio. Well, did you ever? That's ha- the most amazing thing about Edgar Bergen. <laughs> he built this huge fortune over uh, radio ventriloquism. Yes, he made it work. Did, sold it. Did either of you ever have a ventriloquist dummy? No, I didn't because I was interested in one day um, having girls be interested in me. Pat. I, I didn't have uh, high aspirations like Will, but no, I, I, I didn't have one either. Yeah, so I'm the odd man out. I had the, I had the Lester dummy from Willie Tyler and Lester. I think that may be the only acceptable uh, ventriloquist I, dummy. Perhaps. I don't know how acceptable it was in the mid seven to late 70s for a white kid in the suburbs to have a black dummy. I mean, I... I, yes. I, was, I was going to ask how that could have. Oh, you striking a blow for racial equality. I don't think that's how it was probably seen, but uh, my, by putting words in, in the black puppet's mouth. Yeah, yeah, that's. But more, who was controlling who? That's true. Well, in the end, I mean, I I just realized I wasn't psychotic enough to be a ventriloquist. So, I, uh, and what did you do with Lester? Uh, I threw him down the slip and slide a few times uh, until his head broke off. True story. Like, you want to think how crazy it is that, like, hey, you don't understand, like, what, like, people say, wait, when was R.E.M. an alternative band? No, even crazier, there were times when ventriloquists were famous worldwide. Worldwide. Uh, dude and Madam, I can't even think of his name, but everybody knew Madam. The man's then. name was Waylon Flowers. Waylon. Show some respect. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to show some respect by calling him a dude uh, instead of a guy. Wayland Flowers and Madam, come on. And I was the one with the ventriloquist dummy strange. <laughs> but it's weird that I know all about them. Ex- it is. Exuming McCarthy was, uh, I, I remember, it really resonated with me, to use a, a gross marketing term. Um, because it, this was the height of the, the Reagan years, and I was 17, so I... At this point, I had my uh, Coke boycott uh, intact because they did business in South Africa, and I was uh, I was reading books called "Where Is Nicaragua" and, and uh, supporting whatever you know, seventeen-year-old liberals do. Um, did Pepsi not do business in South Africa? I'm sure they did, but Coke was a story that I found out about. They did business, so I I was down with Coke. As I said, I was seventeen. I think the other like beauty of being like coming of age when we did was that like. There were things to be mad about, but we didn't know about them all. Like, there's one thing, you know, people talk about, um, I don't like when people say that you talk about, like, outrage overload. Because, as my wife says, like, if you're, you know, if you're, if you have outrage fatigue, imagine how the people who are outraged feel. 
No, exactly. And and the same people who say they have outrage fatigue seem to have an endless store of it when they're driving or yes. behind somebody in the supermarket. So I yeah, I don't buy that either. I didn't know that was so outrage fatigue is people who who just get sick of of being upset about things yeah. that are happening in the and, world. And, I've never and, heard of that. That's And is a lot insane. of it is a lot of it is like, "Oh, they're going to be mad about this now." Right. It's uh, well, the, what it really comes down to is people what they're really saying when they talk about that is like, hey, I'm a white guy. Why but, can't I do what I want? Why can't I live comfortably? Well, the, the the most recent example is, I don't even know how you say his name, Chris Delia, who cares? But, you know, mm-hmm. his whole, with the uh, Yes All Women hashtag where he, he was calling it bullshit and whatever. And um, Was was the voice you were doing, Will, is that uh, Vinnie Barbarino? Uh, it wasn't supposed to be, although I've recently found myself watching Welcome back, Cotter, on a on a fairly regular basis on Why? one of those retro uh, channels. Yes, it does not hold up well at all. Uh, it did not hold up well at the time. I, I don't think I even remember. Didn't every episode begin and end with Gabe Kaplan telling his wife some stupid borscht belt joke? Yes, uh, that that was corny to me as a seven year old kid. Yes. Well, I remember it being in syndication in the eighties and thinking back then, oh, this holds up horribly and it has not gotten any better in the 30 years we've had to let it stew i will tell you one uh one that i think holds up better than most from the era barney miller oh barney miller holds up really well yeah also i gotta say max gale who played uh wojo yes underrated like we'll just say it underrated tv hot dude max gale good looking man very good looking man big beefy guy and uh and played a dope really well, but you could tell he was intelligent. Yep. Um, Barney Miller holds up really well. So, of course, we're talking about Kazumi McCarthy. Yes. Let's get back to the Aria. Sorry, I, I will go down every blind alley we can go down. <laughs> yeah, that's, this is going to be a, a 15-hour-long podcast because that's Patton Mai's uh, raison d'etre. All right. Let's laser-like focus. I do want to talk a little bit about the... Uh, about the yes, all women thing and the MRAs. No, I shouldn't. We've done it enough, right, Pat? You can talk about whatever you like, but if you feel like you're about to have an aneurysm, please let me know because I don't want to. Well, I, I just think there's nobody more defensive than white men, and I don't say this from a position of um, that I'm a paragon of of virtue in that sense because I recognize the problem in myself as well. Um, but really, the whole yes, all women thing to me is just listening just just fucking listen to what they say i don't know why that causes people like it's immediately but i'm not like that yeah but (laughs) fucking guys are a lot of guys and I, i mean i just being in a relationship for 15 years i realized you know i would do that i would get defensive and be like well it wasn't my intention to hurt your feelings so therefore i'm absolved when Really, if you're hurting someone's feelings, maybe take a look at yourself and listen to them and, and value their feelings. All right, I'm going on a rant. Let's let's uh, let's get off rant topic. It's a worthy. Oh, event. I have a I, I have a rant that I was reminded by this this outrage fatigue. If someone has an issue, like if they're against something happening in the world, that doesn't mean everything else can is doesn't matter. Like I can't stand when someone like Congress passed that thing recently where they. Uh, said the the Washington Redskins name was racist and they should change the name. And all these commenters said, oh, they have plenty of time to do that. Why don't they do this, this, and this, and this? There 
there is lots of things happening in the world that have to be commented on. Just because they comment on it does not mean they don't care about anything else. So right. stop they're di- doing that. Well, there are different teams working on different things. Exactly. And, you know, comedian Graham Clark, who I really enjoy, has a, has a great joke where he, he gets mad when people say, like, oh, they can put a man on the moon, but I can't get my iPhone to do this thing. And that's, I forget the exact setup, but he's like, you know what? There are different teams working on that. Like, don't get mad at the guys who went to the moon because you can't figure this one thing out. <laughs> Forsooth. Mm-hmm. And also, that's another thing that amazes me every day, the fact that we have computers in our pockets that are uh, a million times better than what we had in 1987. Oh, we're living in goddamn Star Trek times. Uh, yep. Everybody really needs to stop complaining so much. Um, and I'm wearing a red shirt. Exhuming McCarthy, I thought was pretty, uh, I don't want to say funky, that's the wrong word, um, but bouncy? Is that a good yep. word? I don't even know a good word to describe this song. Um, it's got horns from, I believe, members of Los Lobos playing on this. Um, a nice little just piano bonk every now and then. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why I like the subtleness of this song. The little things happen just now and then through the song. There's a little horn noise, too. It goes just not every, not throughout the whole song, just now and then. And Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, police completely political which you know got me fired up and and full of righteous indignation uh at 17 and uh again great mike mills background vocals with the absolutely meet me at the book burning well and there's also a neat thing rem did a lot of this early on where hey we're gonna just sort of put a sound we're gonna we're gonna just throw something into the mix and in this case it's the typewriter Mm -hmm. you know that kicks off the song which intentionally or not plays to the sort of red scare fears of you know the government keeping tabs on us oh i had never even thought of that but that's that's an excellent point will really the kind of points you should be making more often pat i try but i like i like that it's it's very jaunty and then it goes into that kind of um 60s spy music type Mm -hmm. bridge thing and then back into the jauntiness and and it even has a uh the speech from oh goddamn why don't I know the senator's name, uh, who was just given McCarthy shit you know the have you no sense of decency sir, yes yes um, um I could look it up but yeah we'll, we'll know what it is yeah nobody it, cares it was somebody famous it, I would I would imagine so but um it's just a great song I think um let's let's listen to a bit of exhuming McCarthy. You're beautiful, more beautiful than me You're honorable, more honorable than me Loyal to the Bank of America
uh, if there, okay, so Pat, you have a song pick, but there, if there are any other songs anybody wants to talk about briefly uh, that that affected them or or not, uh, let's do it here. You know, I have to say that listening to this record again, um, there were songs that absolutely murdered me as a teenager. That listening to now, I'm like, I don't know what I was so excited about on that one. I loved King of Birds as a teenager more than more than I even understand. Like I, it, to me, it was just the 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 deepest and most important thing I had ever heard. Very philosophical. And, I was right yes. there with you. Yes. And today I'm like, that was a nice song. It's got that nice little drum shuffle to it. You know, I enjoy it, but I didn't go crazy about it. Um, I also didn't know at 13 years old that there was a wire cover on the record. Strange. Yeah. Didn't know that. And you know, when I later discovered wire, it, it was a little mind blowing. And the wire version is, is terrific. Yeah. REM does a really credible cover of it. And REM doesn't get the credit they deserve for choosing their covers wisely because they really have done a great job throughout their career, uh, other than the cover of Toys in the Attic that appears uh, on a compilation. Right, I don't, I don't know that anybody could come off well covering Aerosmith, necessarily. Probably not. And they know that that's a joke anyway. Um, but yeah, they really, um, they really did a great job with it, but I didn't know it was a cover at the time. That's also one of the one of the things that I don't think happens as much now that we have so much information is that we don't, you know, we don't have that discovery where you find out later on, like, oh, there was this band, you know, there's this band called Wire, and it's a whole other universe for you to, to learn about. Right. Yeah. No. Now it's just uh, I, I don't, right I on think Wikipedia. Kid, I think kids do have that discovery, though. They'll hear something, and they'll get used to a version of a song, and then they'll hear the original. Mm-hmm. I, I do think they have that experience. And, of course, if they're 19, they say the original sucks. But I do think they do go through the same thing of discovery. And I just wish more bands did covers, because I think covers are fun. Not for a whole maybe not for a whole album, but for B-sides and stuff. They're, they're fun to listen to. Different interpretations of the same song. And it is neat how often R.E.M. did it yeah, and how well they did it. Well, I think I think I kind of agree with Will in a way in that, like, say, music geeks will find that stuff immediately now because they'll they'll do some research and and all you have to do really is look at a a Wikipedia page um, and you'll find out a song's a cover and you can see who did it and you can go download it immediately for ninety nine cents. But I mean, when you when we back then we knew things were covers by seeing who wrote that wrote it on the liner notes, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. I just you know I you see the names, but I didn't know who that was. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I didn't, you know, they list the composer, but it's not like, oh, this is a wire cover. Go mm-hmm. to your, you know, go to one of your more mysterious record shops and ask them, ask them to order a wire seat order a pink flag. Just wasn't happening for me. Right, right. Well, I, I think, uh, I, yeah, I think the second side gets a bit bogged down in Merck. Um, Oddfellows I, Local 151, I feel like is kind of a dirge. Yes. And, uh. Oh. Even I, who love this record, almost always skip that one. Yeah, yeah, same here. Even and you know, Fireplace and Light and Hopkins are what they are. I don't think they're they're terrible songs, but they're not. They don't really fire me up. And you know, Michael Stipe kind of honks like a goose a bit, <laughs> on, which is the King of Birds, I believe. I like the one I love. 
the one I love is a great song. Sure. Um, in a lot of ways, kind of broke the band to a wider audience. This was the biggest song from this. Yeah, the one I love. For- the biggest song in their career to that point. Yep. Huh. I, I I was assuming that it's the end of the world was the biggest song. Nope. No. Not even close. It's funny. Again, like, wrong again. It's funny that like as they became a bigger band after this, and there were more sort of best of compilations that have come out in recent years. It definitely skews the idea of what was a big song. So somebody going out and getting, you know, a best of REM compilation, you know, some of the stuff that came out like in the last five years would would make that you know would make that logical leap and say, you know, End of the World as we know it and Exhuming McCarthy must have been these giant radio hits. Like, you know, it was the um you know, it was the uh, Casey and the Sunshine band of their of their era. Like everywhere you went. You just heard it, and it, it wasn't it wasn't true. I remember, you know, again having to stay up late on a on a Sunday night, just and you didn't know what was going to be 120 minutes it's, or or the cutting edge, and just hoping that you were going to see, um, you know, not even an REM song, just a song by a band that you liked that you knew, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. No, it was uh... which made it you know jarring when all of a sudden. You know, like their first big MTV hit, you know, was a song that, well, this is getting off track, but was a song that they would consider a joke. Was it you know, Stand? Was Stand, was their first big MTV um, hit. Yeah, that, I, well, well, we'll talk about Stand on the Green episode, I'm sure, but. Uh, You'll get there. Yeah. We have that, nothing but love for that song since it was a theme song for one of the best sitcoms ever made. Well, my favorite show of all time. Oh, we we got the right person on this episode. Yeah. Uh, of course, everybody knows we're talking about Maud. Um, it was actually called Maud 2000. It wasn't the original Maud that everyone's thinking of. B. Arthur had nothing to do with it. No, it was Chris Elliott as a paper boy. Um, but they went with the Maud name for... It's a weird choice. And well, syndication is called Get a Life. Yes. Honestly, that works a lot better. So your pick, Pat, uh, do you want, well, just tell us your pick. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. When you thought it's was a, the huge hit. I th- I did think it was a pretty huge hit because I just, I've heard it so many times, but again, that might be just because I played it so many times or it just happened to be playing. But I also picked it because I thought it was a good pick to talk to Will about to hear what he thinks of it. Of, uh, in relation to, fire, yeah. In, re- in relation to We Didn't Start the Fire. I was going to ask that too. You know, uh, that's that's a great, that's, let's hear it first. Okay, well, yeah, here's a bit of It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I feel fine. The other night I tripped a nice continental, drifted by a mountain, slid in a line, Leonard Bernstein, Liam had grass, nap, Lenny, Bush, and Lester Banks, birthday party, cheesecake, jelly bean, boom, you symbiotic, patriotic, slam, but nap, right? It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the 
so we didn't start the fire wheel. Um, obviously, Billy Joel's attempt to redo this song, I would say, but <laughs> you're, you're the expert. I don't, I, it certainly wasn't a conscious attempt to do so. I wouldn't be surprised if he knew this song. Um, Billy Joel, as I've learned, is pretty savvy about you know other artists and, and knows what's going on, uh, or at least you know, knew what was going on at the time. I think he paid attention to to what was going on, you know, beyond his own stuff. Um, you can hear a lot of influences of uh, current day music in a lot, especially in his '80s stuff. Um, but again, I don't think he was trying to to uh, to copy this. It's just one of those things that came out. You know, if I had to pick between the two, I think "End of the World as We Know It" is a far better song. Um, interestingly enough. I think that they're both probably songs that the artists do not like to play live. Yeah, I would. Well, and understandably in the case of we didn't start the fire. Well, and that, sorry to go back to Billy Joel for a second. um, Do you consider that his worst song? I consider that to be, actually it's not true. There are two Billy Joel songs that were hits that are terrible. Um, One is called, no, River of Dreams is a Dreams? decent song. Yep. Okay. River, um, there was a song that Billy Joel released in the mid-80s called Modern Woman, which is on the soundtrack to the movie Ruthless People, which is an absolute, um, it's the worst three minutes of your life. Uh, it's not good at all. Is and, that the only place you can find this song is on that soundtrack? No, it's also on, it's also on uh, his album The Bridge. Okay. Uh, not a good song. And it's it's like synth heavy. It's it it's not good. It's not Don't playing go to looking his for it. It's not. Um, it's definitely one of those like sort of playing to maybe hearing something else that he enjoyed. And you know it it just it's awful. Skip it. Um, but we didn't start the fire. Is the second big hit that I don't like. And the reason I don't like we didn't start the fire is it, it's a gimmick. It's a, it's almost like a, like a puzzle, like, hey, how many things can we cram into something and call it a song? It's got no melody. It's got no, um, it's, it's as subtle as a cinder block in the face. It's, um, and also, you know, continues the idea of, um, hey, the baby boomer generation is the only generation. It's, it's self-aggrandizing. It really is. Of a generation who, you know what? I uh, my parents are that generation. I don't have anything against the idea. You know, be proud of what you accomplished. But you know what? The just because you were born at a certain time, like you don't get to take credit for it simply because you were alive. And I don't think that Billy Joel is doing that. But that's what the song became. You know, a lot of the things that changed my mind about Billy Joel were the idea that he did not write these songs with the intention of them becoming what they became. So the disconnect between what he wrote and what that song came to represent, either to me or to just consumers of pop music, were two different things. Yeah, I can see that. Um, uh, yeah, it's. I agree with you, uh, especially about the, uh, the self-aggrandizement. And, but that was, that was something I think everybody our age was getting sick of from the baby boomers where it was just constantly rammed down your throat. The idea, right. you know, that 
that they changed the entire world with with civil rights and you know you they did accomplish great things in the 60s most of the people talking about it were probably like 12 at the time but whatever um and and I I would always hear from this this woman I worked with of that generation uh, when I was like 20 you know we ended the Vietnam War and I would think well American involvement went on for 12 years. I, I think it was really when Middle America got sick of it that right. that the war ended. Um, and let's not let's, let's give a little credit to the the Vietnamese for also helping <laughs> to bring the war to it. Yeah, Honestly, maybe. who did more to end the Vietnam War than the Vietnamese did? <laughs> True. That that is true. Yeah, it was it was just a, this constant barrage of we're great and and I was thinking, well, I'm not of the generation that elected Reagan. I know that. Um so maybe maybe check yourself a little more, baby boomers. But uh, that's not what this podcast is about. I thought that's what we're uh, we're going towards a, a baby boomer all baby boomer all the time podcast to get more listeners. Once they figure out how to download podcasts, we will have our audience. Um, well, we're gonna have it come out on vinyl. I'm fairly certain that my mom is going to listen to this. So, mom, if you're listening, I don't mean you. You're okay. Um, Will's mom, if you're listening, thanks for uh, doubling our audience. Uh, Will's mom, I know I tend to curse a lot because I hear that from a, a lot of people tell me their moms say that. Um, so let me apologize to you up front. I don't mean anything by it, uh, but I, I am a child of divorce. The the thing about that's different to me about uh, it's the end of the world and we didn't start the fire is um, it's it's believable from from REM. Uh, I, Michael Stipe uh, is is a playful sort of person, or can be, and uh, I feel like it was it was somewhat of a novelty song. But I think they also um, they also thought it was good at the time, at least, and and something that they were proud of. And it, and it definitely developed from something else. I'm sure you guys have heard like the early versions of it. Like it became the song that we know, whereas. I don't have any doubt that we didn't start the fire started out as something similar to what we know is we didn't start the fire. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt at all. When um, I was thinking about this song, I was just thinking about some random person goes up to Billy Joel and asks if he can re-record the song with updated lyrics, uh, making it uh, to be relevant towards the present day. And I thought Billy Joel would probably say, sure, I'll do that. But if I, people went up to Ariane, uh, I'm probably wrong, but if people went up to REM and asked that, their answers would be much different. Michael Stipe would say, I don't know, if you look into the past, it's like looking into a funhouse mirror. Peter Buck would say, fuck off. Uh, Mike Mills would just walk away, and Bill Barry would say, do you see the form? I'm not I'm not working right now. Goodbye. Yes. Leave me alone. But uh, So you don't think Billy Joel would say yes? Um... I don't think that he would. I don't think it's a song that he necessarily wants to go back to. I will say that probably the most frequent question that I get asked since we've wrapped this up um, is, do you think Billy Joel would update the lyrics so we didn't start the fire? (laughs) And I don't think he would. The people want to know. People clearly there's, I didn't, clearly I didn't there's a market that, for it. I didn't realize that was some something somebody would actually ask. I just oh no, it comes up a lot. Wow, I, now I feel bad for even. No, no, you, clearly you're 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 tapped in. I should have read your FAQ. That's okay. 
I'll, I will update the FAQ to say, I don't think Billy Joel's going to update We Didn't Start the Fire. And that's the entire FAQ. That's it. No, yeah. also to just also say, I don't think REM's going to update it. Sam of the World as we know. It they're, yeah, I'm certain that they're not questions. going to. They're going to get back together just to do that. Well, in the interest of not having this be a four-hour podcast, because um, we still have an album to go, we yeah. should maybe take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back with you guys. Yet. Are you going to play this song, or do you already play oh, oh, already? damn it, Pat. Don't tell me my job. Uh, sorry, Will's mom. We'll be right back. We had a comrade, a brave comrade. He could talk for whole days. But then he tried to be a hero. Tried talking about Shamiro to computers wearing earphones. He almost died for conversation, hallucinations, good vibrations. Van Dyke Park's Greyhound Racing, steeplechasing, the Reformation. Transubstantiation, Brian Stucker's creation, the land of the Thracians, and right back to the stars. All right, we're back, and we're talking about new adventures in hi-fi. So um, this was kind of um, past my REM prime. I I own I own every album. I bought every album they put out, but I was not as nearly as huge a fan by the time this one came out. So uh, it doesn't it doesn't hold any real special place in my heart. And to be honest, some of the songs um, I wouldn't have been able to hum to you before listening to this, re-listening to this album, and a couple I still probably couldn't couldn't do. So. Uh, what are your guys' feelings on this album? Uh, we should say the uh, document was the first, and this was the last album produced by Scott Litt, and this is also the last album to feature Bill Berry. And the last of their their manager, their original manager. Oh, yeah, was it Jefferson Holt? Yeah. Hey, Which I, I, I don't have to say show some respect. You knew his name. <laughs> well, he's... <laughs> He's no Wayland Flowers, but yeah, I did know. I, I wonder if there was bad blood with him leaving. I, reading the interviews and stuff with him, it seemed like there might have been a little bit where he, he said something like, We've, we're not the same people anymore. We're interested in different things. And it just it's, it seemed like a diplomatic way to say, I hate those fucking guys, but I maybe think, not. I think the rumor at the time was there was some uh, maybe sexual indiscretion at the offices involving Jefferson Holt or something. Oh, man. Yeah, but I don't know. You know, management has a – anytime you work with a manager, there's a certain shelf life, you know, where – take, you know, even baseball managers. Like, there's a right manager for a right period of time, and the right manager today isn't going to be the right manager forever. But let's, you know, the, the, the music is still there. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's not get sidetracked by, uh, by rumor and innuendo. Um, you guys don't want to talk about Tommy Lasorda? Is that what you're saying? I, Will I'm might. Not a fan of Tommy Lasorda, largely because I once went to uh, I once went to this event where he was speaking, and I'm pretty sure he's a racist. Wow, that that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I knew he was a homophobe. I, oh, that's too bad. I yeah. never really cared for the guy, but it's it's too bad. There's another reason not to not yeah. to like. Yeah, not a fan. It's yeah. It's it's almost like. Something crazy like having an NBA owner be a, a racist. Right. Never heard of such a thing. But new adventures in hi-fi. Your your guys' um, 
Well, Tommy Lasura also beat up the Philly fanatic. Well, you know what? That guy had it coming. Oh, you're talking to a you're talking to a Philly. Uh, Pat is in Philadelphia as we speak. I'm sorry. Pat. Well, yeah, it's, it's okay. We've got. I, a, uh, I'm a New York Mets fan, so um, I don't like to talk about the Phillies. Let's end the podcast. <laughs> We've basically. Good night. This is John, and we've got uh, Tupac and Biggie on the line here. <laughs> so, New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Tommy Lasorda is not credited on the record. I don't believe that he had anything to do with this. So, anyway. I, w- I would be extremely surprised if you ever heard it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that Tommy Lasorda was in R.E.M.'s inner circle. At least not by the time this came out. He was He was involved early on. Um, I, I think he did a lot of the like promotional work around the um, the Murmur record, but he he got off before that. Yeah, Michael Stipe did live in L.A. for a while, and I I think they were neighbors. And a lot of a lot of the early lyrics were written by Tom Lasorda under a pseudonym. Well, yeah, what you don't know is that how many of these songs are really about like you know early '80s Dodgers players. I have yeah. nothing to add to this conversation. Yeah. I just want—I want everybody the A's, to know. The A side's all Pedro Guerrero. <laughs> yeah, South Central Rain is written to Pedro Guerrero. I don't think people realize that. We are really getting off track here. This is always John's dream for for this podcast to turn to a sports podcast. <laughs> turn it into a sports podcast I think about I, uh, yeah I'm, about I'm, relationships between our favorite. Um, 80s rock bands and our favorite 80s baseball players. Whenever baseball comes up, I, I start smelling toast. So I, I think it it's, I, I, I might be having I ha- a stroke. I haven't investigated yet. Uh, Will, have you listened to the baseball project? Yes, I have. How are they? Actually, great. Yeah. If you haven't heard them, uh, there's an REM connection there. Um, yeah. Go listen to it. Yeah, it's terrific. John, even though you're not a baseball fan, you don't have to be. It's, it's terrific music. Um, it's, uh, Peter Buck is, is a member, um, Steve Wynn, who I've been a, a big fan of for many years. Oh, Dream Syndicate. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. owner of the hotel in Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Um, where I believe Billy Joel is playing tonight to bring this all back home. <laughs> anyway. Mike, Mike Mills is in it too, right? He is now. He wasn't originally. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. He's, he's involved now. Um, and anyway. a, sh- a shout out to, uh, Josh Kantner, uh, Josh Cater, who is uh, both a member of the Baseball Project and the organist at Fenway Park. Oh, no shit. Yeah, That's yeah. Awesome. That's I think is. more baseball stadiums should have organs, and I, I'm glad he exists, and I wish yeah. more stadiums would get rid of the crap where they just play songs as batters come up and have an organist mock the other team and stuff. It's so much better. Now, Josh Cantor, he's on, I'm going to plug him here. He's on uh, Twitter as uh, J. Uh, J.T. Cantor, K-A-N-T-O-R, is uh, a great musician. He's in. He's, he plays with Baseball Project. Um, he plays with uh, another great band called The Split Squad. And for 81 home dates a year, he plays the organ at Fenway Park, which is why if you pay close attention during a Red Sox broadcast, you can hear things like the best show theme song being played during the World Series or... You know some of your, you know some of your favorite punk rock classics being played at Fenway Park. Oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome! Yeah, yeah, he's great. Well, do either of you have any kind of history with this album, or was it just something like you picked up because it was REM? Uh, 
did it have any special meaning to either of you? It didn't for me, to be yeah, honest. For me, this was the this was the departure for me. This was, you know, going through we talked about like out of time. I was obviously really on board for that. I didn't like automatic for the people. And I know I'm I'm probably in the minority on that. It's grown on me since, but at the time I didn't enjoy it. And Monster was kind of an outlier that I enjoyed, but it didn't feel like an REM record. I was just excited that they were going to tour and play again. Um, but by the time New Adventures came out, I wasn't really excited about it. And all week long, I've been trying to figure out why that was. And you know, I realized it's because when it came out, I was 22 years old. It's 1996. So by this point... Um, you know, Nirvana has come and gone. Um, you know, there's been this whole um, sort of indie labels being swallowed up by, you know, and indie bands being being sort of brought into major um, major labels and putting out records and then kind of imploding. And by 1996, I think I didn't want anything to do with what I saw as like big corporate rock. And that's kind of what REM felt to me at the time. Um, I agree. Yeah. And I just like, all I wanted to hear in 1996 was like a band made up of basically just, I wanted to see people I had never heard of music. I had never heard, you know, I lived on long Island and it was, it was a 45 minute train ride into Manhattan any night of the week. And I would go see anybody as long as it wasn't somebody who was on a major label. Right, it was some small club show. Mm-hmm. And that, that was also the time in my life when I started, it actually coincides with getting on the internet for the first time. And it was when I started learning more about things that I didn't know about. Um, and I started going backwards to things I had missed. You know, I hadn't listened to Big Star up until then. I hadn't listened to television until then. I really started working backwards to the things I'd missed, and that's something that has continued to this point in my life. And I didn't really go back and give um, New Adventures in Hi-Fi a chance again until we first talked about doing this a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, oh, let me, I know I have it around here. I bought it out of a sense of obligation and never really loved it. So I went back to it and, you know, gave it another listen. Yeah, that, that's basically my experience with it. I think I bought... I was in the army at the time this came out, and I, I'm sure I bought it like at the at the PX or something because their selection was so limited. I was probably right. just dying for anything in the middle of nowhere. Um, and and yeah, I, I basically had the same reaction as you did. Um, although listening to it now with fresh ears, it's not that bad. No, I don't it's think not bad at all. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty good. A lot of I mean they they're even some some stuff that i didn't remember like on uh the song leave they've got this public enemy siren going through the whole song i don't know if you guys remember that yeah i didn't i can't say that that was one of the things that that grabbed me as a positive but there were a lot more <laughs> things that i liked about you know it's also it speaks to a lot of about hey what do you get mad about at 22 compared to what you get mad about as an adult right and you know what rem didn't sign you know their warner brothers deal in order to become CEOs of Warner Brothers, they signed it because 
a company offered them a ton of money to continue making music. Who among us wouldn't do that? No, exactly. And to their credit, they didn't. They didn't. They never became uh, Journey or you know whoever right. your your terrible artist of choice is. Um, Even their ter- their worst album was not not that bad. I mean, it was bad, but just compared to the rest of their stuff, it was so. bad right. for an REM album, right? And this one was not. Yeah, and I didn't. Uh, with Leave, I would I would agree with you, Will. I think the Siren was the only thing memorable about that song. That's one that yes. I couldn't I couldn't hum now if uh, if you paid me, but. Uh, I think the first half is not as good as the second half, which I don't think I usually say that about albums, but for this one, that's true. I like the first half quite a bit. Really? I like yeah. the second half better. I think that as a record as a whole, it it suffers because of the way it was made. Yeah, it's, a, it's weird how it was made. Yeah, it, it, was, we, it was made like part in studio, part during sound checks. Right. And it, it just... It, and even in studio, a lot of it was like mobile studios yeah. on tour, right? Yeah. Right. So let's let's talk about some songs, though. Yeah, I, I don't think... mean to be the boss of the podcast all of a sudden. Oh, we we love it, dude. It it uh it hides our own ignorance and stupidity when the guests talk more. Um, the yeah, the, the album's kind of all over the place. I guess it kind of, in a way, splits the difference between automatic for the people and monster. Mm-hmm. Um. It's got some nice acoustic stuff. New Test Leper, I think, is really nice. Uh, just old old style REM folk rock. Right. Um, but, sorry, I'm going through the list trying to figure... Oh, I think, Will, yours actually... So we all pick second side. Uh, I don't think by, I don't think intentionally, but, um, you know, before we get to the songs... So I hadn't heard Ebo the Letter in probably 15 years. I have to say... If the Hold Steady recorded Ebo the Letter, I would buy it. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, this is a Hold Steady song. It's it's you know it's 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 funny you say that. I was reading. I was telling John before the podcast. I, was, I had been reading a bunch of letters that people had sent to Michael Stipe, and he answered on a, a some a blog. A guy had taken. He's going through REM's catalog and writing about each song, and somehow he got in touch with Michael Stipe, and a bunch of people asked him questions. And one of the questions was specific, specifically about Up. But Stipe kind of answered about that that period, the later period of their career, where he w- he wishes someone would take those songs. Where he do- he doesn't know if they did the best job on them. He wishes someone else would take the, the songs and put their own arrangement and sing them. And I think he he thinks that they're there's a lot there's a lot they're a lot better than they sound, which is kind of what you're saying that this would be better if someone else did it. Well, yeah, and I think that it's a the Michael Stipe we get in 1996 is is vastly different than the Michael Stipe we knew 10 years earlier. And, yes. you know, for all, you know, while we know, you know, while this, you can guess all you want over sort of who was the creative driver of the band, Michael Stipe was the face of the band. Yep. You know, he was the spokesperson for the band. And Michael Stipe is so big in 1996. Like he's almost larger than life, you know, in the mid 90s. He is sort of a veteran of, you know, he came up through, you know, that, that American underground that gets, you know, that same thing that Husker do and the replacements and everybody else came through. And he makes it big and still manages to maintain his artistic integrity, you know, so much so that, you know, he, you know Kurt Cobain, in, you know, in one of his one of his last, you know, living thing talks about him. So he's he's a big deal and he's this big personality and 
this is me speculating, I don't know that Michael Stipe knew what to do with that. And I think that he was trying to do as much as he could at this point. And I think that sometimes he misses the mark. I agree. I mean, I think you can actually, you can almost kind of tell that he's trying to work within the system and manipulate the media a la somebody like, say, Madonna, but he's not nearly that savvy or maybe that crass um, enough to enough to pull it off the way she could. What, what I like about Michael Stipe, we, I mentioned this, I think, in the, the first R.E.M. episode, is how earnest he is. And even when he's, he's larger than life at this point in his career where he's big, he still this seems like such a sweet guy and he just wants good things to happen to the world. And I really like that all through the nineties where there's so much cynical cynicism in the world where he was just always seemed so earnest and so nice. Yeah. And I think that you certainly say, say what you want about the, the results from this record, but he was certainly ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly tried to do a lot. He certainly tried to expand on things that they had done earlier, it would have been very easy for them to put out, you know, just, hey, we're going to put out another um, another automatic for the people. Yeah. It, they could have settled into a groove of recording the same thing over and over again, and they didn't do that. And even though the results at the time didn't hit me, um, I think the record holds up better today than I thought it would. Yeah, I do too. I, I was actually pretty surprised by uh, by how enjoyable a lot of it was. Um, but let's let's go. To your pick, Will, once again, is the first one uh, going in order from the album is uh, "Bittersweet Me." And uh, so, what do you got to say? You know, I this is one that I almost completely overlooked back when I first. I'm pretty sure that I bought New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Listened to it maybe three times, you know, in the two weeks after it came out, and didn't go back to it um, again until a couple of weeks ago. I feel like it's this great, um, it's, you know, there was, when they put Monster out, there was noise, you know, Monster was noisy, but it was <laughs> self consciously, hey, we're trying to make a loud record. Yes. Bittersweet Me has the same sound, but feels more organic and natural. There's such a big difference between the, hey, we're going to put out this swaggering record that we're going to call Monster, for God's sakes, and Bittersweet Me, which is a more personal thing. You know, for all of the, when we talk about R.E.M. and Michael Stipe specifically, we talk a lot about the, the way he avoided categorization and the way he avoided coming out and really talking about himself in ways that were very clear. And I think that Bittersweet Me is the first time you see him revealing something um, something about himself in, a, in such a clear and obvious way. Yeah, I, I you know, would agree wait. with that. It's, lyrically, it's, it, you can't compare it to document at all, anything on document. No, but when he talks about, like, you know, I don't know what I want anymore, like, that's as honest as, you know, John Lennon writing a song called Help. Right. You know, he's really coming out and saying it, and I don't know that I was ready to just take him at face value at that point in my That's my problem, not theirs. 
Right, right. Well, uh, well, it's kind of theirs in a way as well because they'd been he'd been uh, oblique for so long uh, lyrically that you know what what can you really right. you don't you don't know how to process it necessarily. But it, it, there's there's a self assuredness to it that I really that I really enjoy hearing today. Like yeah. I will probably keep this record, you know, in you know regular rotation for a while now. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, and I agree with everything you said. And I th- uh, especially about Monster. To me, Monster almost sounds like a sort of a reaction record to you know maybe fans being like, "Oh, you're mellowed out too much" or whatever. Who knows? Um, where this this song definitely, while maintaining um, some of that swagger, as you say, and the and the toughness of Monster, sounds much more natural and organic. Um, so let's take a little listen to Bittersweet Me. I move across innocence lost all flesh and poor side I move across the earth in my new pattern shirt I pass satellite You're so bitter, you're Sorry, I didn't even ask for your opinion on that one. That's okay. I, I didn't have a lot to say. I enjoyed the song. I, I like Monster apparently more than you guys, but I, I do hear a definite relevance between that and Monster. It has that. It does have that hard edge to it. Yeah, Monster is uh, the songs on. There are some songs on Monster that are great, um, but for in large part, you know, you'll get to it when you talk about that. But it's an outlier in the catalog. It's it's something that doesn't feel like anything else that they do. But, but uh, there is stuff from later later albums where it, it's almost referencing Monster, mm-hmm. where how songs start and how they sound. But yeah, yeah. but really we should only talk about uh, <laughs> New Adventures in Hi-Fi. We really so, don't want to go off topic. It's so, kind of right, who, laser focus. Yes. So Pat, what's your song? Binky the Doormat. And I picked this not so much for the specific song, but just to talk about how much one of the things I love about REM is, is the references to pop culture that they're always doing. It's always obscure references. It's not often things that everybody's talking about. So it's just Binky the doormat is the, uh, I guess it's a line, but it's also the character from shakes the clown. And uh, it's just, it's just fun that REM did that when so many, I'm like, what's the frequency Kenneth and uh, man on the moon. I, I enjoy those pop culture references and that's, that's why I picked this song. I don't, it's a, it's an okay song. I mean, not okay. It's a good song, but that's, I didn't pick it so much musically, but just the pop culture reference. Yeah. I think I, it's a decent song. I think it, it kind of gets stalled a bit. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of forward momentum. It's, it's kind of one riff and then, somewhat of a chorus um but i mean i like the sound of it. i like the guitar sound and everything but it, this is another one that uh 
that actually I was surprised I, I could hum after listening to it once, um, but it didn't make a huge impression on me musically. You know, lyrically, though, it reminded me of sort of the, the golden age. You know, we just talked about how clear he was on uh, Bittersweet Me, whereas on Biggie the Doormat, it's, it's not clear exactly what's going on. And it, it reminded me of that golden age of this could be about anything. <laughs> anything you want to put thing. into it, yeah. I, I remember my takeaway was, again, the, the reference to the movie, um, but the name Binky has always had a significance to me. Because one Christmas, I, my dad, um, he basically, he, he, he won a little person in a bar bet. And that little person had to stay at my dad's house for the holidays. <laughs> and that so I ask again, did you grow up in Alabama or Long Island? <laughs> grew up on Long Island. And, uh, Wait, so who, year, the little person really won, it sounds like. He did, yes. Yeah. So the little person um, spent the holidays uh, at my dad's house. Um, the holiday right around the time that this record was out, actually. Um, and yeah, his name was Binky. And every time I hear this song now, I'm going to think of that little dude at my dad's house. Wait, his name was Binky? Yes, he was. I don't believe that was his given name, but that was what he went Someone by. did give it to him. Yes. I don't believe that his parents named him Binky. But yeah, a little guy named Binky helping out around the holidays. Well, it just doesn't sound like he was in any way exploited. So, I wonder yeah. what your dad, if, if your dad had lost what he was, maybe he had to give you up. Right. Well, 22-year-old Will. I don't, I don't know exactly the terms of the bet. My dad uh, was, uh, was famously cagey about giving up information. So when I said, hey, uh, who's the little guy? He's like, I won him. And I said, won him how? He said, in a keeping your mouth shut contest, which <laughs> made it clear I was not supposed to ask any more questions. I, I mean, I think that's something we can all relate to, this, this anecdote. So that's what I think about when I think of this song. I, I don't know who doesn't think about a little person who uh, strangely lived in their ho- a house for a while. So yeah, that's All I'm going to think about when about. I listen to it now, and now it's my favorite song on the album. Uh, so let's share it with everybody else. Here's Binky the Doormat. Um, you know, I've read some of your stuff. I, 
I, I don't want to say I uh, envy you necessarily, but you do have good stories. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. you know, it's really about how do I turn, um, how do I find the humor in things that could otherwise be traumatic? Yeah, sure. I mean, all I, all I can go with is I, I remember that time he called me a zit-faced ugly punk and then slapped me, um, but there's not so much humor in that. <laughs> is Binky doing that? Binky Bink- had a temper. As, as one would expect. Binky was this Binky was no doormat. No, I well, you know there. Uh, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, I have. They they, you look at their ancestors and and you can see where the temper comes from. Yeah, he yeah he had a lot to be angry about. I had a question, Will. Yes. If, what do you think if you had come up with your idea for one year of Billy Joel in, let's say, nineteen ninety two? And do you think you could still have done it? Of course, I don't know if it would be as popular, but if you, would you have been able to do it as a zine or that sort of thing? I probably this... could have, and it would have definitely fit into the, the sort of zine ethos of take a strong opinion and just defend it and never budge from it. <laughs> um, I, I think that what I would have done in the early 90s would have been something I would, be, I would disown today. In fact... <laughs> Almost everything I did in the early 90s, I disown today. But I, I, I was thinking more in uh, technical terms as far oh, yeah. as blog versus zine. Did- I don't know that I would have done it simply because of the logistics of it. Mm-hmm. it um, you know, I, I admire people um, who a, still, you know, there are a lot of people still putting out, putting out zines today. Um, I have a good friend out here in LA, uh, a guy by the name of Brody Foster Hubbard, who who still is is dedicated to putting out you know sort of small press you know zine publications because he feels passionate about it and it's something that he can do on his own er- his own terms and do exactly what he wants to do. I know you can do that on the internet, but I appreciate the fact that he's willing to put the work into it. And you know, as a as a Young as a young man in the '90s, I would not. I did not have the stick to itiveness that I have as a grown up, and I think that I probably would have put out two issues and then decided it was too much of a hassle to go get more staples and would have stopped. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think it's really admirable, especially in this day and age, to be putting out zines. Yep, I think it's great. I think that you know, it's it's almost like the idea of hey, CDs are everywhere, but I'm going to stick with vinyl. Like there are people who are just who are dedicated to the format, and I gotta say I love it. Me, yeah, me too. Do you know the name of his zine by any chance? He has got a number of things. Look up just Brody Foster Hubbard. Uh, he has a thing called Fair Dig that he does now. Um, he's he's a terrific guy. Somebody I'm you know I, I'm lucky that I've just managed to meet good people who I'm proud to call friends, and uh, he is one of those people. Awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I, mean, I feel John, like. You sent- sent me a zine one time uh like 10 years ago of uh the guy writing letters do you remember that where he wrote absurd letters to their businesses and just printed up in a zine i don't sorry no okay i mean that was kind of a thing 10 years ago anyway wasn't it like that there were a couple books even yeah the the seinfeld's friend did one and yeah my favorite part of like 90s zines were just like you know i've got a musician and I love him. I love this musician so much that I'm going to put out this zine 
But, you know, after two or three issues, you're kind of running out of content. So all of a sudden, you've got this Robin Hitchcock crossword puzzle in the back of something. And it's like, I love this. Like, I just, I wish that, you know, the internet almost ruins that because there's so much more material, source material now. But, man, if you could just get to the point where you're making just, you know, you know Nick Cave and the Bad Siege, you know, search of words or the... The Junior Jumble featuring nothing but, you know, blues explosion lyrics. Like, that's just good living. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I mean, I, think- I had a friend in, the, in college who wrote a ska zine, and she wanted me to write for it. And I said, I don't, I, aside from the mixtapes you've given me, I know absolutely nothing about ska. And she said, it doesn't have to be anything to do with ska. I just need to fill up space. So I just, just- wrote these, these little surreal stories to put in the zine. They just needed something in there. We got inches of column to fill. Exactly. I mean, and this is kind of the uh, this is the electronic form of zines. Sure. I feel like podcasting, and I I really I wish that more people would start doing it. I mean, I like I love listening to podcasts, and I will try out just about anything. Like I I like listening to well known comedians or whatever, or or social commentators, or of course you know the the uh, this American Life. But I also just like listening to two dudes or two women or a man and a woman who are just people talk about stuff. Um, if they can, if they can keep my interest for an episode, I'll keep going with them. You know, I, I think hope. it's a, a very democratic and, and kind of punk minded, uh, art form, if you want to call it that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call it that in, in our case, but in most other cases. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, in our case, we'll just call it a form. Don't sell yourself short guys. I only go on top notch podcasts. All right. Search me in iTunes. I only I only appear on top notch shows. Well, there you have it, people. Uh, why? Yeah, why aren't you? Why aren't you listening to this, everybody, every week? But, but they are listening. Oh, they're, they're, they're listening said. now. Sure, sure. It's it's just keeping them for next week. That's always the the bitch. Um, speaking of which, Electrolyte, my pick. Um, now here, you said you did not like Automatic so much, Will, but uh, this is my hypothesis. Um, they're piano-based songs. Every every song that was basically just a piano and vocals. I know there's more to it, but but where the piano is the main instrument rather than guitar, um, I think are all great. From Perfect Circle to Night Swimming, which is maybe my favorite REM song. Um, Night Swimming is terrific. I will I will give you that. Okay. And I don't want to. I I want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to jump on your. Uh, no, I no, jump on I mean, your message here. That's about it. I like even from Up um, at My Most Beautiful. I like and and this one. I think they're all. They're all top shelf songs. They're they're piano songs. That was it. Um, Electrolyte is probably my favorite song from the post peak REM period, from the second half of REM's career. Let's say everything from you know green. Uh, well, I don't know where you want to have the cutoff. Yeah, I would I, say green on. I would just say Warner Brothers onward is is yeah me, yeah Warner Brothers onward. Electrolyte is probably my favorite song. Wow, awesome. yeah. There's there's one unfortunate uh, lyric with the Jimmy Dean instead of James Dean because he's got to fit the meter. So you end yes. up thinking of the sausage well, are, guy. Are, yeah, I was going to say, are you sure that's not what he's talking about? I would just given the context of the the rest of the lyrics, I would think he'd meant. Given the Hollywood Dean. context, I'm sure yes. he meant. But you know, James Dean's friends probably called Jimbo, Jimbo Dean, my friend. You know, that that, that is true. Or even, we don't know that they didn't. It's true, and and if anybody would know, it would be Michael Stipe. Right. So we'll give him a pass on that. But I just think it's uh, they they always uh, 
hit them out of the park. That's a baseball reference, right? Yeah, with yes, their, it is. With their piano references. Uh, unlike uh, George Michael, who likes to hit it in the park. <laughs> no. I apologize oh, well, again man. to your mother, Will. Um, it's but okay. I just think Electrolyte, it's beautiful. It's its pretty. its uh, It sets the mood that I think it intends to set. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's just a, a really beautiful song i'm i'm getting uh incoherent we've been going too long what about you pat yeah beautiful I, I i like it a lot i feel like it's the only song from that record that stuck with me yeah um, me too i've yeah it's one that i have have kept in in the rotation so um did you of, guys read the wikipedia page for the song i did not no. There's an interesting anecdote that Michael Stipe, I guess, told on VH1 sto Storytellers, where he he went to the, he was he lived in LA, and that's where the, the song came about when he was living in LA. But he went to the dentist, and he shared a dentist with Martin Sheen, and he happened to be there when Martin Sheen was having work done, and he went over to him and said, "I have a new album coming out, and there's a song that you're mentioned in it, and I, I just want you to know that I'm not making fun of you. I'm just trying to honor you." And apparently, he was telling the story in concert, so he did an impression of Martin Sheen with dental instruments in his mouth saying thank you very much so i thought that was pretty funny i wonder if martin sheen has ever heard it he probably he probably was like who is this uncle fester i didn't know you were recording albums uh and the man's name was jackie coogan are you they sure? need a law after him <laughs> i'm sorry i just like, i just like telling you people's names can we do a podcast where it's just me telling john people's names that would that was is a podcast that would go on forever. Yep, it would just be like twenty questions. I'd be that guy, uh, you know, the the guy with the mule, and you'd have to you'd have to give you a name. Yeah. Um, well, instead of us uh, yammering about how beautiful this song is, let's uh, let's play it for everybody. Here is Electrolyte. If I ever want to fly, shit we finished we did it i think we managed to get it in under two hours as I think, well i think so who, who cares? well after songs are put in it might be a little over two hours yeah it might be closer to four i'm sorry i gave out your secret the extended cut the, and i mean remarkably pat for uh, having such a distinguished guest on we managed to not act like a bunch of goddamn cuckoo birds for most of it i think nice work guys i'm proud of you our our tangents were to the minimum and they were uh, mostly Will's fault. So yeah, I, I'll take you down Dark Island. We'll go to bad places. Uh, so, uh, are we back to George Michael? So <laughs> yes. 
we usually do uh, recommendations, will pop culture recommendations, but we haven't been doing them for these REM episodes because they're we're doing two a week, uh, and it, it's just killing me and Pat to come up with that many things. But if you've got one you'd like to share, uh, other than the ones you already have, you're you're free to recommend something. Let's see. What am I really into these days? You know, by the time this comes out, it's going to be over. But I've really enjoyed the uh, the FX TV version of Fargo. Oh yeah, yes. Um, you know, by the time this airs, it's going to have run its course. But it is uh, it is terrific. Um, what else is going on these days? Let's see. Um, you know, podcast wise, I think that you know people should listen to this podcast more. If you like this one, and there's no reason why you shouldn't, you should go uh, dig up some more. Um, support you. Support your local podcasters, kids. Come on, they're working hard. I agree, and I, I uh, thank you for that. I listened yes, to you. your episode of uh, Will Sean podcast. Is that the name of it? Yeah. Um, those guys do good work. They, it was really fun. It was. It's another one. Like I didn't know who they were, but now I'm subscribed to it. So I like the title. I haven't listened to it yet, but I do like the title. Yeah, they do good work. Um, and you know, since we're talking about music here, uh, there's a music podcast that I enjoy a great deal called The Whale Cave. Which um, it, I know it's it's a it's an unusual name, but it's the Whale Cave. It's um, done by a guy named Matt Price, and normally he has comedians and and musicians, you know, talking about their experiences with music. If you're looking for a place to start, uh, the hilarious Andy Daly tells a great story in an episode. Look up the Whale Cave with Andy Daly, and you will not be disappointed. Comedians and music. Comedians and in. musicians. Yeah, it's um, you know, it, you know, it's it's the Whale Cave. It's done by Matt Price. Find the Andy Daly episode if you're looking for a, for an entry point, and you'll be very happy. I so, love Andrew Daly on podcasts, but I haven't experienced him on any any anything else where he's nearly as good as he on as he is on podcasts. I wish they he could do his own show or someone could write for him as. To, to oh wait, level. hang on. You know he's have, got a show on Comedy have you, Central. Have Pat. you seen Does Review? He? Look, Review, which ran on Comedy Central, um, you know, it was a ten episode thing and ran on Comedy Central um this spring is terrific. It I'll um, look that up. It it really feels like it's writing to his voice. He was, I think, more involved in the writing process than some of the stuff he's done previously. Um and it really plays to his strengths and it's terrific. Yeah, Andy Daly's one of the best going right yeah, now. I he's agree. great. Okay, the whale cave. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, sure. Because God knows I'll never listen to this podcast uh, on my own again. So I, I'll make a mental note: the whale cave. But um, well, thank you for coming, Will. This was oh, my this was super fun, me, guys. Yeah, thanks and, a lot. This was awesome. If you ever want to come back, feel free. Yeah, if you've got any Let's ideas, talk. yeah. Um, and uh, so if you're a friend of Will um, and you are listening please go rate us highly on itunes you don't have to write a review just uh click you know four stars you know why be uh, why why be crazy about it four stars is fine go five guys these guys work hard and, and even if you're not a fan of a uh, friend of will you can do that well i mean we try to discourage that uh, yeah, even, even if you don't like me go ahead give it five stars yeah I, I think he's i think uh he's talking to you will's mom i'm oh, i'm mom trying to, come on we, we do try to never mind uh you can like us on uh facebook we don't post that much i think we only post uh what once a week pat when we do the episodes or twice now i guess sometimes we put recommendations up and uh relevant links but yeah we don't we don't put so much that it's bothering your feed yeah we we really do not 
try to get in anybody's faces. Uh, we, we basically promote ourselves to our friends on Facebook. Uh, it's not going to get in the way of your BuzzFeed quizzes. Just come on. Like the page. I, I, speaking of outrage, for some reason I have a, a tense amount of outrage against BuzzFeed. And I'm why? Maybe it was the article I read where they don't treat their workers well, but whatever it is, I'm anti BuzzFeed. No, I, I know some of the people who work for them, and, and I, it's it's how you it's how it works these days. I was going to say it yeah, sounds. The it's probably, are over balloon. You know, pretty well. People I know who work for them have been treated fine. Oh, okay. I, I can't speak for everybody, but uh, but they've been doing okay. So calm yourself, Lassie. I'm talking to you, Pat. Nobody's down looking, the well. I was looking for the well. And and what else? Uh, so like us, do that. Uh, yeah, we're not we're not big on social media, so uh, we're building an audience slowly. But um, what I'm else? Thinking of starting a Tumblr. Write us at popculturecontinuum at gmail dot com if if you want to be on the show. If you have any questions or comments, or just if you want to say hello. Ideas for the show. Yeah, friends of Will, you can come on the show. Um, insane uh, Toothless Winos, you're free to come on the show. We, we are open to all, so uh, so do it and, and give us some ideas. And uh, I, I will say once again, thank you very much to our guest, Will, for hanging out this whole time and being uh, entertaining. And, uh, thank you, guys. Read his blog. Yes, Year of Billy Joel, and look for his book, I Know It Will Be Published, uh, based on A Year of Billy Joel. When and, is that uh, coming out? That is in the works. So I can't say that I have a date for when that's going to be out, but in the works. As soon as we can, as soon as we can get it, uh, as soon as we can get it going, I'm I'm really proud of how it's coming along, and I think people are going to like it. That's awesome that you've turned something into something bigger, something that's yeah. pretty big into something even bigger. And if it's people want to follow you on Twitter too, will uh, you can give that info out? Sure, it is uh, a name that I chose years ago that now I'm stuck with. It is be the boy, B E T H E B O Y. Or just put my name into your handy Google machine, and you will find me. Yeah, and and you should follow him. He's a he's a great guy. Uh, I met him on Twitter, so uh, if that means anything to anybody, which works for me. Um, so until next time, goodbye, everybody. Thanks, goodbye. guys. Bye.
indeed, yes I do. Now give me just a little Funny, every time I get to feeling this way, I wish I had you near me. I want to reach out and touch you. I can't stop thinking of the things we do. The way you call me, baby, when I'm holding you. I shake and I shiver when I know you're near. 